All right, friends, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get going. Lord, in the comings and goings of life that occupy so much of our thought and energy and time, we sometimes forget to pause to recognize that you are with us through all of that, that you are with us even now, that you are with us in the word that is spoken in Scripture, you are with us in the hearts and smiles and words of sisters and brothers in faith, you are with us in the power of your Spirit, a power and presence that we do not understand, but that we affirm that we sometimes feel, and that even when we don't feel, in faith we know is there. We thank you for all of these facts about you and for this one fact of our life that you are with us. So come and inspire us again, educate us again, spur us on to acts of greater love and service, spur us on to deeper and more abiding peace and confidence in our souls about all that you have offered to us in this life and in the life to come. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I don't recall if Terry mentioned that next week we won't be here for this Bible study. Did you say that, Terry? We're off next week because you are going to be home making pecan pie and pumpkin pie and green bean casserole and uh, sweet potatoes, salad kind of thing. Sweet potatoes are a vegetable <laughs> with lots of butter and sugar and nuts, right? All that good stuff, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving. And then we'll be back again the week after that. Okay, we are coming um, in this coming Sunday and in this season of study we are coming to the end of our fall series that has been focusing on the possibilities and the promises and the problems of human community. Community with God, community with each other in the church, community with others all around the face of the planet. And so if you've been bored or tired with this study, take heart, it's almost done. <laughs> uh, if you have not been bored or tired with this study, take heart, you're going to get a diploma. We should have, we should have a diploma for everyone, don't you think? There we go, a ribbon or something, right? Or a, or a Starbucks gift card, I don't know. At any rate, we're going to continue to talk about that set of issues and questions today as we look at a couple of very, very well-known uh, and, and famous, if you will, biblical passages, one from the 60th chapter of uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah, and then the other from the 21st chapter of Revelation. So why don't we read them uh, all together, and then, um, and then we'll start looking at them as we always do. So Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 4. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. That's Isaiah. Now to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here endeth the reading of the word of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> wow. You've heard these passages before, right? Yeah. Arise, shine, for your light has come. You know, Handel's music just starts filling my brain as I'm reading that little passage there. Okay, let's talk about these things. First of all, just a little bit of background on the passage from, uh, from Isaiah, and then I want you to do some work, and let's think together about what it says. The book of the prophet Isaiah, one of the more influential books of the Old Testament, one of the influ more influential collections of, of prophecy and theology as we move into the New Testament period. The book of Isaiah probably is actually a compilation of prophecies that originated with Isaiah himself, with the prophet himself, who lived sometime around 742 to 687, 750 years before Jesus. Isaiah lived and prophesied in the northern kingdom in Israel. He prophesied during a time when the Assyrian Empire was attacking the nation of Israel. By then, the nation of Israel was actually split in two. The northern kingdom, the northern part that was called Israel, the southern part that was called Judah. Well, the northern part eventually fell in about 727 or so. It fell to the Assyrians. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are very certainly from that time period. But then, as you keep going through Isaiah, the language begins to change a little bit. Some of the historical assumptions change a little bit. There are subtle differences that uh, scholars be, have said probably mean that some of material was tacked on to the end of Isaiah that comes from a different period. In fact, they even think that there are maybe two other collections of material, all in the tradition of Isaiah, all with the same theology, essentially, as Isaiah, but speaking perhaps from a different period. And those two other sections comprise chapters 40 through 66. Of course, we're in chapter 60 today. Those last two sections, or that one larger section, there's argument about whether it's two or one. We don't need to worry about that. That last section speaks more from the time of the exile, from around the, uh, the early, um, early 500s, say 587, uh, 200 years or so after first Isaiah, uh, when the Babylonian Empire is attacking the southern kingdom now, attacking Judah, and Jerusalem eventually falls. We've talked a lot about that historical time period here. And so it's important for us to get in mind what Isaiah is saying, not only in the original section, but in these subsequent sections. It seems that Isaiah is speaking from the time when the Babylonian Empire actually succumbed to the Persian Empire. Now, we actually have a date for that, October 29th, 539, okay, before most of you in the room were born, right? October 29th, 539, King Cyrus of Persia entered into Babylon and took over the Babylonian Empire, okay? A very important date. Babylon is about 60 miles, ancient Babylon is about 60 miles south of modern-day Baghdad, and when Cyrus, the Persian, took over, he started allowing the exiles from Judah, from southern Israel, to go back to Israel. And so all during that exilic period, when, people, when the nation had been destroyed finally and when families were separated, we've described the horror of that time. Various and sundry prophets talked about the restoration of Israel when God would redeem the nation. And now it seems like that is beginning to happen. All of that history and all of that conjecture, and it is conjecture, there is nothing in 
the book itself. There's nothing in the text itself that says this section is from a different period of history, right? Those are clues that we pick up uh, as scholars looking at the historical references, the theological references, that sort of thing. None of that can be proven without a shadow of a doubt. And so I always like to step back just a little bit and say, what is the situation that we're looking at and what are the deeper theological truths that we're looking at? Does that make sense to you? And so let's start to take apart this language, and we'll apply it back to Isaiah's situation a little bit, regardless of which historical situation it's in. Because one of the fascinating things I think you'll discover as you study Scripture is that Scripture speaks to all human situations at all times of history. At least that's my opinion. Uh, and there are many people who share that opinion with me, and I'm certainly not original in that. But let's start to take it apart. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Okay? We are used to thinking of that in terms of the birth of Jesus Christ, right? Because the early church read this as their scripture and said, oh, that's talking about Jesus. Well, yes, it is. But before Jesus arrives. We're talking at least 500 years, maybe 700 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. What do you think Isaiah meant by that? Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. What might that say to people who are being attacked by a foreign empire or who have already been taken off, deported to live in a foreign place? What does it say? Don't give up. Don't give up. God is with you. The light has come. There's a lot of conversation in here about light and darkness. Verse 2, for darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and His glory will appear over you. This is no surprise to you that light and dark figure prominently in Old Testament imagery to describe the reality of God and the reality of evil and the difference between those two things, right? Light is a good thing, right? Would you agree with me? Light is a good thing. We don't like to be in the dark. Dark is a good thing too. We understand dark has to happen and light has to happen and all of that. But when we're talking about religious imagery, of course, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, and not just in the Judeo-Christian tradition, but in all religious traditions, light stands for that which is good, that which is beautiful, that which is true, that which gives life. Light is all the good stuff. Dark is all the bad stuff. Okay? It is not a description of the quality of the two different colors, if you will, although you really can't say that white and black are colors, can you? Anybody here ever studied color technology? White is what? The presence of all color, and, and, and black is the absence of all color, okay? Right there, though, we've said something theological, haven't we? Dark or black means absence, <laughs> emptiness, void, right? And light means presence of everything. So the light of God is going to come upon you. It's a very, very easy image to understand, which is why it's so prevalent in, in the Scriptures. But as you begin to think about it a little bit, think about all the ways that, that light appears in your life. And let's go beyond that now, and let's try to describe. If, if you were going to come to me and say, the light of God has come into my life today, what kinds of things might you say to me are evidence of that, right? If you walked to me and said, the light of God has shone upon me today, I'd say, okay, how do you know that? What happened? Can any of you say that today? There's one of you who is going to get some light of God. It's happening right now, right? Where are you sitting? You're having twins, right? There you are. There you are. You're waiting for twins to be born. They're here? Congratulations. They're beautiful too. Of course they are. <laughs> Congratulations. Mabruk. That's the way you say it in Arabic. That's one of the words I've learned in Arabic. Mabruk. Congratulations. Okay, someone else. Has light appeared for you recently in your life? Blessing. Yeah, sometimes even a stranger says something to you that speaks into your heart and it's like, oh, that's cool. That, that lifts me up or encourages me. Absolutely. Yes, I try to be that stranger a lot. Do you try to be that stranger? Do you try to bless everybody that you come across with the words that you say to them? It's, it's a really cool, it's fun to do. It shocks people because they don't expect you to be nice to them. Yeah, or just smiling. 
Yeah, yeah. Someone else, how does the light of God come into your life? How is it today? Yes. Peace, okay. You feel at peace in some way. Yeah, cool, cool. Someone else. Um, having a friend who says a word that you just know God sent you to give you peace or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Having a friend say something that's yeah. encouraging to you or yeah. truthful. Yeah, yeah. Has anybody had something happen today that has brought the light of God to your life? Yes. And my friend here said, you don't have to bring any decorations because it was pouring down rain. You don't have to bring any decorations. Just, we'll just bring the food and everybody will understand. I go, uh -huh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you did anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone else. How has light appeared for you today? Yes, Susan. And I felt the light of God shine down on me and I had a lot of things in my basket and there was a man that looked like a worker. He was in worker clothes mm -hmm. and looks like he might not have been speaking English, but he had one item and people had let him up. And I had a problem and so it took longer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, but the light of God just shined on me and I said, give me his item. Mm -hmm. And I paid cool. for it. Cool. And he didn't really realize it. Mm -hmm until I was walking away, mm -hmm. but everyone else in the line was, oh my gosh, they couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet I felt like, I don't know, God just shone a light on me and said, pay for this man. Yeah, yeah, God just told you, that. that's cool. And Standing in the line at Vons and you pay right. for the guy's thing behind you, right. that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Would you let me know when you're gonna go shopping next time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. No, that's exciting. The light of God sometimes comes and says, go do this or say that or pay attention. Yeah, totally. Someone else? Anyone else? Yes. The rain. Yes, absolutely. We do need water sometimes, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I just got a new puppy two days ago. A new puppy. A new puppy. And he's so much work, but has brought me so much joy. Yeah, yeah. New puppies are fantastic until they chew through all the wires of all of your appliances and all the legs on your furniture and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience or anything, but yes. I just had a visit from my stepson and his wife, and they left this morning, so we had a great time. Cool. A visit from your stepson and his wife. Yeah. yeah. They live in North Carolina, and this is probably the first time they've been here at my house in 20 years or something. Wow, wow, that's cool, <laughs> so. that's cool. Okay, all of those are different ways that describe the something that happens, something that you feel, some event that is proof of the presence of God with you, right? Okay, Isaiah is going to describe a similar kind of thing. Let's look at how Isaiah describes the light of God shining upon the nation of Israel. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Let's stop right there because then he goes into another thought. Okay, let's picture the situation. Israel, if this in fact is from the time of the exile or from the time when the exile is about to end, Israel is not a nation, right? That was Israel's big promise from God to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You wandering uh, nomadic Bedouin people, that's what the word apiru from which the word Hebrew comes means Bedouins, the wanderers. You folks that don't have a home are going to have a home. You're going to be a nation like all the other nations, except of course they're not a nation anymore, right? You don't have a home anymore. You are refugees. You are exiles. But what's the sign that God is going to shine upon you again? All the other nations are going to come to you. You are going to be the nation par excellence. You're going to be the nation above all nations in the sense of all nations coming to you right? Isn't that a fascinating idea? Now, as the exiles are allowed to go home, we've talked about this history this, uh, this fall already. As the exiles are allowed to go home, Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, 
sends along some people and says, I want you to start rebuilding the nation of Israel. I'm going to send architects and engineers and religious leaders, and they're going to rebuild the nation of Israel. Israel is going to become a nation again. Think of how exciting that would be for the people, right? I don't know. You don't have to answer this out loud, but have any of you ever been homeless? Have any of you ever been kicked out of your home and not had a place to live? Okay, there are people like that all around us, uh, more than you really want to realize. Uh, and it's fascinating to hear their stories of what it feels like to have everything taken away from you and then to begin to build again. There's no greater privilege than to be with those kind of folks and to help them in that process, right? So people from the Babylon, where they've been held captive, start coming back into uh, Israel. Uh, what was Israel? What will become Israel again? There's still a lot of people left there. And the first people come back, and everything goes perfectly from there. Nope. <laughs> nope. What kinds of problems do you think would happen? Let's say, okay, let's, let's try, to, I'll try to be creative here. Let's think about your own family, okay? Think about your family, okay? Your kind of extended family, your kids, your grandkids, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, okay? Let's say that something happens and half of that family gets taken off to a different country for 70 years, okay? And then they come back. What's that going to be like when they come back? What are you going to feel like? What's going to go on? Be very joyful, right? Oh, interesting. The original ones might have died, and now folks are coming back, and you don't know who they are. Maybe you've never met them before. I'm your long-lost cousin so-and-so. Really? Okay. What else is going to go on? They would even have a different culture, right? Right? You know, if, if, if your stepson and his wife stay in North Carolina long enough, they're going to learn a different culture, okay? Not that it's a bad culture. I'll have a lot of family in North Carolina, but there's a little bit of difference going on there, right? You were going to say something, Brenda. Um, how, do, how do we assimilate? There we go. How do we assimilate, right? Okay. How many of you have 12 extra bedrooms? And you have, and 80% of your income, you don't need it. It's totally disposable. And so when the long-lost family comes back, you say, move in. I'll take care of you. Really? Right? Have any of you ever lost, uh, you know, some folks in our community have lost a house to fire or, or a, a business to fire, Right? In our community, it's pretty easy to say, well, insurance is going to take care of it. You rebuild. What if there is no insurance? What if there is no money to rebuild? How are you going to rebuild? How are you going to... Let the long-lost family comes back, and you live in a one-bedroom condo. How are you going to add on? All of that highlight. When you stop and really think about the human stuff that's going on behind these beautiful passages... Your light has come, the nation is restored, all this wonderful stuff is going on. You begin to get a sense of the real struggle that goes on historically. We know that as the exiles came back and they started talking about rebuilding the faith and rebuilding the temple, that there was a lot of political infighting. The folks who had stayed back home were not so sure that they wanted those folks from somewhere else to come and tell them what to do, okay? When it came time to rebuilding the faith, a lot of those folks who had stayed back home had intermarried with people of other faiths. And Ezra stands up and says, hi, we need to go back to the faith of Yahweh, our faith in God. We read a passage just a few weeks ago about take your foreign wives and children and put them away. Remember how tough that was to look at? So all these things are going on in the midst of this prophecy, this amazing proclamation from Isaiah about how God is blessing us, the light of God is shining upon us. Not only are all the nations coming back to us, especially our own nation, but then look at this phrase, your sons shall come from far away and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. 
your son shall come from far away. Okay, you talk about a stepson who hadn't been back for 20 years, right? Okay. Now, that was just because he hadn't had a chance to be back here, right? But think about, think about your sons and daughters who've been carried away against their will and against yours, and now they're allowed to come home right? What a beautiful thought that is. Your families are going to be restored to you. The rest of chapter 60 in Isaiah and 61 and 62 have a lot of discussion about all the wonderful things that are going to begin to happen again in the life of Israel. They're going to be materially prosperous. They're going to be successful as a nation. All that good stuff is going to go on, but it doesn't come easily. It doesn't come quickly, and it never comes back in the way it was back in the good old days the good old days under David and Solomon. And so this message from Isaiah is one that the people have to hang on to even more, right? When they realize that God is rebuilding them, but it's not easy and it's not immediate. It will take generations perhaps. And so Isaiah gives that word of encouragement, a word that the community is going to be put back together. Now, let's, let's keep that passage in our minds as we start thinking about the passage from Revelation, okay? What do you know already about the book of Revelation? Talk about who wrote it, when it was written, how it was written, why, all that good stuff. What do you already know about Revelation? Say it again. God wins. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. That's been probably 10 years ago now, maybe 12 years ago that we studied Revelation, right? And if you weren't here when we did that, all you need to know in Revelation is that God wins, okay? Now, we can say a little bit more about that, but that's the first thing, okay? What else do we know about Revelation? Yes. Yes. Yes, John, perhaps the Apostle John himself, uh, probably, uh, was exiled on a little rocky desert island in the middle of the Aegean Sea uh, called Patmos, and he has this amazing vision. He, he, uh, whether that's something that God just implants in his mind or something that God builds in his mind and his soul slowly over time, because John uses a lot of stuff from the Old Testament, right? It all comes together in his mind. When was Revelation written? Remember that? Revelation was probably written towards the end of the first century, okay? I know we're off by a few years in the calendar dating because uh, Pope Gregory got a couple things wrong. You know, that's fine. He was pretty close, uh, closer than I would have gotten. But let's say Jesus was born at, the, at, at year zero, okay, and then he died at 33. So by what we would call 33 Anno Domini or 33 in the common era now, CE, okay, probably not until 73, 83, maybe even 93, maybe even 103, maybe after the turn of the century. We know at that time in, in the history of Rome and the history of the church that Christians are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Originally, they were not, okay? If you think that, that right after Jesus, Christians were persecuted, that didn't happen. Christianity had to take hold a little bit. It had to begin to change people's lives. People had to begin to live a little bit differently for the Roman Empire to take notice. And they did take notice starting in the latter part of the first century because everything that John talks about in Revelation is about how to withstand persecution. Persecution in the forms of your community around you uh, not doing business with you anymore. And so there's great economic pressure or your community around you not associating socially with you anymore or your community around you saying to the local Roman authorities, that person does not believe anymore that Caesar is God. Why don't you have a conversation with them? And so you're hauled in to the local police station and you're placed in front of a statue of Caesar representing the Caesar himself back in Rome. And the Roman official says to you, who is Lord? Who is the king of everything? And your answer is supposed to be, that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is the kurios is the word. But you can't say that anymore because you know that Jesus is Lord. And so if you say that Jesus is Lord, then you uh, might have all of your possessions taken away. You might be thrown out of town. You might be killed. You might have your family killed in front of you. All kinds of bad things can happen. 
Okay, that's what we mean by persecution in this time. That's the time frame and the situation that Christians are facing into which John is speaking a word from God. So this is about as serious as, as it can get. This is, this is kind of like the situation that existed in Mosul in Iraq a few years ago when ISIS surrounded the town and said, join us or leave or die, right? Those are your options. It's the same situation. What does John say about that? What is the vision of God from that? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. A new heaven and a new earth. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is coming down out of the sky from God. These are people who have no city. They have nothing. They're in danger of losing the little that they do have. And yet here's this vision again of how everything is going to be restored in God's time. All of this is spoken of in apocalyptic language. Many of you have studied this with me before. Apocalyptic language, the apocalyptic way of talking about things, uses images and thought forms and stories that are kind of fantastic and wild and, and weird and crazy sounding at first. But they're meant to hide the true meaning. They're kind of code language that is describing deep reality about God. It's code language because you cannot speak openly. Because if you speak openly, you're in danger of persecution, even perhaps losing your life. And so there's lots of code language in here. Another thing to remember about Revelation, please get this right, and, and most of you do, I think, um, unless you've never heard this before, but you're going to hear it now, so you'll get it right after this. Revelation is not meant to foretell the future in the way that Gene Dixon or somebody would say on October 29th, 1929, the, crash mar the, the stock market's going to crash. Was that when it crashed? That's the date I picked out of my head. Yeah, wasn't it the end of October 29, 1929? Um, that's not what Revelation is at all. Revelation's not trying to tell you that Russia and China and the United States are going to have a big war and Israel's going to die and all that kind of stuff. Revelation's trying to speak to Christians in their own time and their own situation, persecuted by the Roman Empire, okay? But here you have this, this image, this, this idea of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Why would it be good news to those first century Christians that God was going to bring Jerusalem back? Why would that be good news? Can you think of why that would be? Jerusalem represented the center of people's relationship with God and of their community with God, all right? For early Christians, uh, the, the, obviously the place of Jerusalem is where Jesus was crucified, where Jesus was resurrected. They're not Jews anymore, but, but they have adopted everything about Judaism and more with Jesus. And so Jerusalem is just as important to the Christians as it is to the Jews. And the idea of Jerusalem is important for us to get in mind here because what you have discussed in both this Isaiah passage, the background of Isaiah, and then also going into Revelation, you have these visions, these ideas of these great and wonderful cities, okay? Think of Babylon. Babylon was the most important city in the world in the time of the fall of the Israelite empire, okay? Babylon was where it was at. It was rich, it was powerful, it was beautiful. We have lots of archaeological and his, uh, historical evidence of that, okay? But Babylon eventually went by the wayside. What's the most important city in the world, thinking of the Western world especially, what's the most imp important city in the world in the first century? Rome. Absolutely, Rome. And we know a lot about how magnificently glorious Rome was, right? Okay, and then you have poor little old Jerusalem. Now, you will remember that in the year 74, before Revelation was written, after Jesus was gone, that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem yet again. Read a history of Jerusalem sometime. It's built, it's destroyed. It's built, it's destroyed. It's built, it's destroyed. Over and over and over again. And yet for the Jews and also for the Christians, Jerusalem represents the center of the universe in some ways, okay? So when we say that a new Jerusalem is coming back, we're saying that God is restoring everything. God's rebuilding it all, right? 
Anybody here from, from uh, Germany or from Japan? Those are the two most recent examples we have, right? You go back to Germany and you see all these beautiful, wonderful cities that were rebuilt after World War II. You go back to Japan, you see some of those same things, much more so in Germany than Japan, right? That's kind of what we're talking about, a city that's been destroyed, it's been rebuilt. And it's not just the buildings in the city, it's about the community, it's about the culture, it's about the people that are completely rebuilt. This new Jerusalem is coming down. Look at all the other things that John sees that is evidence of the light of God coming into people's lives, right? Uh, The new Jerusalem is coming prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What? You know where that imagery comes from? Right? The church understood that the, 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 the church itself was meant to be, in essence, married to Christ, right? In our relationship with Jesus, we have our highest good, like husband and wife are meant to have in the original stories of creation, right? So now, this new holy city full of holy people is ready to be married to and to have a full and complete relationship with the Creator, right? I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. God himself will be with them, right? We are used to hearing that kind of conversation, especially around Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us. But think about the opposite of God with you. Is God not in your life? Do you want God not in your life? What happens if God withdraws from your life? Uh Uh-oh. Uh Uh-oh. Darkness, right? Hopelessness, despair, anger, frustration, hatred, even death itself, actually. In the story of creation, God takes a bunch of dirt and makes human beings, and He goes, and they live. In the story of decreation, when God removes Himself, He sucks His life back out of you and you don't exist anymore. That's the anti-creation, if you will, right? But God with you means that you keep breathing, you keep living. It just piles up more images upon images. God Himself will be with us. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. Death, mourning, crying, and pain will be no more. That's a pretty good list, isn't it? How many of you are in pain right now? Okay. All of you have some version of pain in your life. My left shoulder is hurting me right now. Yes, and my heart is broken over certain things that exist in the world, right? Okay, yeah, I am looking at you, Irene, right? (laughs) Right? Death, mourning, crying, pain, tears, eliminated from existence. That's what happens when God shows up in full and final form. That's part of the quality of living in this new city. The images keep piling up. The one who's seated on the throne says, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. There's a very, very important truth that is stated there that is not obvious. And it has to do with the order of those words. I am making all things new. Does anybody here refinish furniture? Anybody here restore old cars is the wrong group to ask that question from. Although, we have a good friend, Anne, who loves to restore old cars. She's got several junked VW Beetles in her garage up in in Boise, Idaho, and she's restoring them along with her sons. She's one of the best guys I know. She's wonderful. When you take something old and destroyed, you renew it, you make it new, right? You take the old thing and make it new. I'm making all things new. That's different from, and crucially so, making all new things. How many of you take an old thing and say, I can't do anything with it, throw it in the trash, let's go get a new one? That's not what God says here. He does not say, I'm going to make all new things. That would imply he's going to forget about all the old things. What he does say is, I'm going to make all things new. The creation is going to be recreated or redeemed or renewed 
or restored or resurrected. All of that's there. This is going to be the new heaven and the new earth that is the old heaven and the old earth that is renewed again. Isn't that fascinating? Right? Write this down. It's done. I'm alpha and omega, beginning and end. How many of you have studied Greek? Anybody here you have studied some Greek, right? The Greek alphabet begins with the letter alpha. It ends with the letter omega. Okay? Very simple image. I am the beginning and end. God was at the beginning and God is at the end. Not something that's not God, but God, because God wins, right? God is at the beginning, God is at the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. That's an easy image. You're thirsty, you get water. Those who conquer will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my children. They will be my people. There, there are a couple of dozen images right there, a couple of dozen pictures and word associations of the incredible joy and beauty and perfection and completeness that comes in the world when God restores all things. And it all is, is wrapped up in this image of the city, the heavenly city that now exists, the perfect place to live. How many of you have ever bought a house or a condo or something in a, in a planned community and you were promised that this was the best place to live? Anybody here ever done that? right? What do they tell you when, they, when they're trying to sell you a house, right? Or trying to sell you a condo or something. What do they tell you about the place where you're going to buy? What are the sales things that they tell you? Best location, right? It's close to Walmart and everything else that you need right there, right? Or, or it's a long way away from Walmart, depending on what you want there, right? Great location. What else? It's safe, right? It's safe all the time, okay? What else do they tell you? Amenities. Amenities. Okay, there's a swimming pool, there's a hot tub, there's a golf course, there's a Baskin Robbins and a Dunkin' Donuts sitting next to each other, <laughs> right? All the amenities and the great things. What else do they tell you? Yes? If they say it's charming, you know it's a dump. <laughs> if they say it's charming, you know it's a dump, Yes. Or if they say it has lots of character, it's a dump, yeah. Or if they say it has lots of potential, it means, yeah, 100 years ago it did, right? Yeah, right? What else do they tell you when they try to sell you a place? Yes. A good school district, absolutely, a good school district. What else do they tell you? Close to the churches. Yeah, they don't say that so much anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. What else do they say? Yes. Good investment, it's going to hold its value, right, or increase in value. What else do they say? Good neighbors, right? They sell you on the community. Have you ever seen those real estate ads where there's a bunch of grumpy people fighting with each other? <laughs> of course not. They're all beautiful people having a wonderful time, right? What else do they tell you? Yes. It's built well, right? It's solid. It's going to last forever, right? What else do they tell you? A home warranty, right? You've got a guarantee. Yeah, when the dishwasher blows up, you get a new one. Yeah. What else do they tell you? You're going to be happy here. Yeah, you're going to be happy here. Yeah, you're going to raise beautiful children who will have beautiful grandchildren who will, who will find the cure to cancer and the common cold, all with one pill that tastes like a lollipop and da-da-da-da-da-da, right? I mean, think of the promise upon promise of what it means to live in the best place and have the best life, right? That's what John is talking about, Okay. I don't think I've ever compared John in Revelation to a real estate, come on, but I, you know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what it's about. The new city is going to come. Okay, what do you do until that happens? Any of you, do any of you now live in the perfect place or you're looking forward to living in the perfect place? Yeah? I live in a great place, but there's a couple things I'd change about it. Yes? Yes? 
The lesson today gives you hope and encouragement that everything is going to be great at the end, and we actually are already moving that direction, okay? Notice in this passage from Revelation, there is a discussion about those who conquer, right? What verse is it? I don't remember what verse it is. Uh, Verse 7, those who conquer will inherit these things. Okay, those who conquer. Those who are faithful to Jesus, even though they're being persecuted in all of those different ways, they are the ones who know the truth. They are the ones who hold on to the truth, that even though the Roman Empire seems to be in charge, that it's actually God who is in charge. And they already know that. They already hold on to that promise. It's the thing that they see and that they realize, even though the outward circumstances of life are in some cases, exactly the opposite, right? And so, they continue to live. They continue to be faithful. If you don't happen to be martyred, then you have to keep on living. And what the early Christians did was keep on living in the way that Jesus had taught them to live. And it's arguable, uh, but I certainly argue in favor of it, that as they did that, they began to bring the blessings of heaven into the first and second century world. They began to realize some of the things that were talked about as existing in the world once it is recreated and renewed and redeemed. God was indeed with them. They were indeed loving each other. They were taking care of each other. They were beginning to experience the blessings of heaven in the here and now. And they used their lives in that conviction and in that hope. That's the way they lived. Is that all making sense to you? You know what I'm talking about here? is that no matter how bad things are right now, you know they're going to get better. And because you know they're going to get better and eventually be perfect, you start living as if they are now because you know that's the right way to do it. And you actually begin to experience the blessing of God in your life right here and right now, okay? That's a blessing, I would argue, that comes to you in the line uh, at Vaughn's when God says, buy this guy's groceries behind him, okay? That's a blessing to him in the midst of life, here and now. It's absolutely fascinating. One other thing about the Revelation passage, we have to look at verse 8. We don't like to, but we need to. But as for the cowardly, faithless, polluted, murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay. Lots of folks like to look at those kinds of passages and say, the people who are doing bad things are going to end up in the lake of fire, okay? But they forget about the fact that all people do bad things, and what does God say to people who do bad things who say to God, I'm sorry? You're forgiven. This is not saying that all bad people are going to burn forever in hell, okay? If that were the case, we would all burn forever in hell. It says that those activities, those behaviors, those ways of living do not exist in the perfection that God brings about at the consummation of all history. Those things do not apply to people anymore, right? If God looks at someone and says, you're going to bring that into my perfect world, therefore I'm not going to let you in, that's God's business, What God says, I forgive you in that and I heal you from that and there no longer is going to be murder and lying and hatred and all that other terrible stuff. Isn't that fascinating? God's going to clean up the swamp that we live in. No, I'm not talking about Washington, D.C. I'm talking about everywhere, right? Right? What an amazing vision of what will come that God is already building. Now, in Isaiah's time, that's a vision that the returning exiles and the families who had stayed back home held out in front of them, and it kept them going to rebuild, even as things were tough, even as those relatives that you'd never met had been overstaying their welcome, right? And in the first century church time when people were being killed because of their belief, it kept people going. So what does it do for you? Okay, think right now today about where your life is terrible, where it's challenged, about where you would love to go live in a place like that, but you don't live in a place like that. You love in the uh, charming place that has lots of potential. (laughs) Right? What is that going to say to you? What's it going to do for you? 
How many of you, when you're given bad news, immediately think about Revelation? Anybody here? I do more and more because we often use this passage at, at funerals and memorial services. And I think especially of that, of that verse, there will be no more tears, no more death, crying, pain, sorrow. Boy, would that be nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? When I walk into a, into a hospital room or into the, the funeral parlor or into the house where bad news has just come or it walks into my office, that's what fills my head now. Isn't that a beautiful thing? What are your thoughts? What are your questions? What is this stirring up inside you? Absolutely nothing. Wow. <laughs> God wins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, what's going to be interesting on Sunday morning is that I'm going, to, I'm going to pull all of this into a conversation about the ultimate human community with God, right? How many of you do live in a place where all the neighbors are magnificent? Anybody here? Cool. Cool. How many of you have neighbors that are not magnificent? Sure. Neighbors make all the difference, don't they? That's ultimately where it's going to go. Go see the new Fred Rogers movie, Mr. Rogers. Yeah. One brief commercial message, and then I'll pray us out of here. Uh, Tom Hanks, right, is the actor playing Fred Rogers. You know, of course, that Fred Rogers was a Presbyterian minister. Mm -hmm. And his wife, I've, I've, I've heard his wife speak before at Presbyterian gatherings. Uh, and you won't hear, I'm very fascinated to hear if, uh, to see the movie and find out if it's going to talk at all about the deep and abiding Christian faith that made Fred Rogers who he was. We'll see if they do that or not, if they have the courage to do that. Fascinating. Maybe that's a good way to end, right? This is a Mr. Rogers neighborhood that's coming down out of the sky from God. Oh, Oh, I like that. Forget I said that. I'm going to use that on Sunday morning. No. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, with you, we know that it's always a beautiful day in the neighborhood. With you, we know that even though the neighborhood might not be everything that we want it to be, that it can become that and that we can help it to be so. We know that with you, one day, your neighborhood, your whole creation, will be restored and renewed and redeemed, and we will be part of that. Help us to live with that hope, that strength, that conviction. Help us to live in a way that other people begin to feel it through what we say and do and how we make them feel and how we introduce them to you. May all that be for your sake and your glory because you're the one that died for us and that lives for us. In Jesus we pray, amen. If I don't get a chance to tell you happy Thanksgiving,